we are entering this morning the Christmas season, and the Christmas season, uh, as we begin our series here today, this year we're calling it the light of the world. And, and as we think of the light of the world, this is a familiar story to many of us. Uh, those inside the church and outside the church maybe have heard the story, this Christmas story, over and over again. But how often do we think about what it really means to have the light of the world? Because the light was present, and that light brought hope to the world. See, that's the really the thing about light, is when there's light, that there's something different that really happens, is there not? You, you can be in, a, in an environment where it's completely dark, and you get this sense of, 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 of kind of fear or hopelessness, but as soon as the light comes out, it changes everything. It's no wonder that the biblical writers and in the ancient world often used light was a symbol of good and darkness was a symbol of evil. We kind of sense that in us for whatever reason. But this Christmas season, what we want to celebrate is the light of the world, who's Jesus Christ. That when light is present, there is hope. Just like we hear in Vic's story. That when there is light, there can be hope because of the presence. I was thinking a few years ago, actually quite a few years ago now, when I was in college, and I was uh, a full-time student, and at night I waited tables uh, to make money, um, and, and then I also was working as a junior high director at a church, and being a full-time student, being a waiter that gave about 25 to 30 hours a week to that, plus, you know, 20 to 30 minutes a week of study, um, I, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of time after social life to do much else. And, and, and so, um, but often when I had to get some stuff done in the office uh, as a junior high director, I'd have to go in and do work on stuff. I often worked from like 10 p.m. to like 1 in the morning, 1 or 2 in the morning. And uh, it was funny because our church was located in a pretty sketchy neighborhood in Tacoma, Washington. There was some gang violence around there. But I remember just, you know, I knew most of the kids and most of the gangsters in the neighborhood, so that wasn't a problem during the day. But <laughs> as soon as I was in my office at night, walking around the church in the dark, and the worst thing was when I was getting ready to walk from the church to my car, all of a sudden, I was afraid of the dark. <laughs> it was scary to walk from there, and I used to walk down, and we had this little window by the, by the front door, and I'd look out the window and see my car and make sure I had my keys and get all ready to make my sprint to the car. Now, I don't know why. There was really probably nothing to fear, but something about that. Um, in those years, too, uh, we had a new staff person came on, and he was our worship director. He was like me. He just graduated from college, and he was a teacher, a music teacher at the local high school during the day, so he would come in at night, and I found out he also worked from like 10 p.m. to 1 in the morning, and one night I was telling him about, you know, why is it so much scarier when it's dark? And he said, I do the same thing you do. He comes up to the front window, looks out, and when we were together, it was okay, but we would, he would look out and run to his car. Now, nothing really ever happened, except for one night, he told me that he got down, got to the window, it's in the dark, one in the morning, he looks out the window, and he sees his car, and he saw two kids in the neighborhood on top of his car, jumping up and down, smashing it in. I thought the story was hilarious because we were good friends, so it was funny when I heard that. But to him, less funny, I don't know. But something about dark changes everything. So when we think of the Christmas season and we think of light and dark, 
we want to think of what is it, why is it that the presence of Jesus does it change everything for us and should it? So that's what we want to explore this year. The light of the world and his presence changes everything. So pray with me as we get started. God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the reminder of the truth of the story that you came in flesh to dwell among us. I thank you for the reminder of even the songs we sing and the verses we read that your likeness shone in a dark land and it brought hope. So Jesus, this morning, there are people in here who need hope from you. They need hope in their spiritual lives. They need hope in their relationships. They need hope uh, maybe in their job situations. Jesus, would you help us open our eyes to see how you change everything and how your presence brings hope. So we thank you now, Lord, and give you this time in your name. Amen. I want to invite you uh, to, in a moment, we're going to get to John chapter 10, but it's going to take a while, but you can start finding your way there. Uh, We're going to actually start off and talk about a little bit of, to understand the Christmas story, what is the history of light, or really, why is this a symbol that is often used when we talk about the Christmas story? I even love when you walk around, and last night we got to hang out at the Encinitas Holiday Parade, which I, I, I love that part of being a part of this community where half the town is in the parade and the other half are standing on the side. And, and, but what's fun is how everybody brings lights, and they decorate their bikes and their hats, and some guy had lights in his beard last night. You know, it's just, it's, it's Encinitas, we're quirky, we're strange, that's fine, but it's us. And I love it, but what I like about it is seeing all the light and being reminded that this is symbolic of light coming into a dark world. They don't even know that they're bringing Christian symbols of God's presence and the whole idea of light. But we want to talk a little bit about light. Now again, as I mentioned already, in the ancient world, light was associated with God often. It was associated with God's presence. In fact, in most of the ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures, when they spoke about their gods, they would say the good gods brought light, and without those, it was dark. So it makes sense that the ancient Israelites also used that imagery and that symbolism. Now the prophets then began speaking about to the people of Israel this idea of light. Even the verse that we read this morning, I want to reread it for you. There's a prophet named Isaiah who writes, and he says this, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So this, again, a prophet is speaking and saying that there is something, if you're walking in darkness, which was the, the evil side or the absence of the presence of God, these people will see a great light. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish these things. This is a prophet speaking and saying, people who are walking outside of the presence of God will see a great light. 
And that great light then he goes on to describe is there's a child will be born. Now, let's talk a little bit about the prophets. Prophets' job was to proclaim truth. Prophets weren't always predicting the future. Prophets weren't uh, kind of fortune tellers. Often what they would do is be present and they would speak the truth of God to a people. Now, often in the ancient world, in, in, the ancient, for the, in the Hebrew Bible, in our Old Testament, the prophets would proclaim something that had a tangible, visible um, fulfillment that they would see happen. They would speak into their moment that was very present. So it was, okay, we're being oppressed. There's some foreign kings, foreign governors. We're going to speak to this and give you hope in this moment. But they also almost always carried a future fulfillment, saying there will be a temporary kind of relief of this moment, but God ultimately has a plan that is much more permanent and much more eternal. So when you get into a passage like this, he's speaking to a a specific moment, and we'll get to that in a moment, of where they're feeling hopelessness, and it's to give comfort for that time, but it's ultimately to say there is a better answer and a more permanent answer that is coming. Now, to the ancient Israelites, that often referred to, almost always, that God's plan was that he would send the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. The word Christ is another word for Messiah. And the Christ will come, sent by God, as a son of God, to ultimately deliver people once and for all. So this is one of those passages that we see this indication of there is a once and for all plan coming. Because the son will be born and his name will be, as you can see, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. And he even said on, he will be on the throne of David, meaning in the line of David. Because David had already died when Isaiah was writing. Why it matters that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the town of David, from the family of David, is because it's fulfillment of these kind of prophecies that were written hundreds of years before his birth. So let's talk about a little bit why, or why were people in Israel walking in darkness? Why was there hopelessness in their lives? So I'm going to give you a few minutes of history, and it's important that we get this history to get a little more context. So strap in for a few minutes, and we'll give you some history uh, for those of you who like it. We've gone through this in the past, so if you already have, you know, a B or higher on the test, you can work on your shopping list for a minute. So, um, but some of the history is this. So the Israel at the time of Isaiah's writing is now what we call a divided kingdom. The nation of Israel had divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That was not the original intent. The 12 tribes have, are now experiencing a fracture in their own relationships with one another. It was God's kingdom and God's people were splitting apart based on their, essentially their zeal for the Lord and they had this infighting and some were uh, kind of the way they would branch off from how to worship God and how that applied to their lives. So they split. There was now a northern and a southern kingdom. Now the northern kingdom was attacked and was conquered by uh, the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. About 150 years later in year 586 B.C., The southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem, Bethlehem, all those exist, those were conquered by the Assyrians. This is not on the test, but it's just so you know. So they were conquered by the Assyrians and taken into exile. So now, think of this. You are the people of God. 
Yahweh, the creator God, has revealed himself to you and your forefathers in miraculous ways. You've experienced his hand in very supernatural ways for your whole history. He's asked your people to follow his ways and commands, not to control you, but so that you can be a tangible display of God's character and his peace and his, his ways to the rest of the world. In fact, the call to the nation of Israel was to be an example and to be a blessing to the ends of the earth, the way they live their lives. As they subdue the earth was a way of saying it is be partners with God and ruling over the earth, not in a domineering way, but by using the characteristics of God in the way you live. So that's your identity. Now that identity has been taken away. Your leadership has rebelled against God time after time. The prophets have spoken into it, and Isaiah speaks into it, and and all of a sudden now they find themselves being taken out of their land. Their identity is gone. Their land is where their temple existed. Their temple was pillaged and destroyed. But their temple to them represented God's presence actually among them. So now that's gone, and they're in exile. After the Assyrians, the Persians conquered them, and so now the Persians are over their land, and they had a little moment of reprieve, where they are allowed under King Cyrus to go back to Israel, some of them, the remnant, and they could build the, rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. So there's a glimmer of hope for them, until another global empire took over. The next global empire was the Greek empire, and the Greek empire takes over, and for a while rules, and there's a somewhat feeling of peace within the land of Israel. They don't agree with the Greek gods and the way they ruled, but they were tolerated until a leader named Antiochus, he changes his name to Antiochus Epiphanes. Again, don't have to remember this, but interesting that Epiphanes means God manifest. In other words, the presence of God in man is what he changes his name to. And Antiochus was kind of a uh, paranoid leader. He, the Jews were becoming more and more skeptical of his leadership, and they didn't like his oppression. Eventually, he starts getting suspicious of them. So he now makes, for the first time, he makes uh, Judaism illegal, the worship of their God, Yahweh, illegal. And he actually issues an edict that they should sacrifice to Zeus. And to make matters worse, he goes into the temple in Jerusalem, according to tradition, And he takes a pig, which is an unclean animal to the Jews. And he goes into the altar in the Jewish temple, and he sacrifices a pig to Zeus in their temple. Can you imagine the outrage you would feel at this point? When a foreign oppressor comes in and says, my name is God Manifest, I am now going to sacrifice an unclean animal on your sacred holy altar to Zeus, who I say is a creator God, even though your altar is to the creator God. It is blasphemy on top of blasphemy, and it's intentionally intended to offend them, and it worked. (laughs) They were quite offended. It's at times like these when the words of the prophets became more and more significant to the people of Israel. When they would pour over these prophecies and pour over these words and these encouragements and they would cling to things were that would say though the people walk in darkness they will see a great light and the people would wonder God when will you show up we don't sense your presence now 
the events after Antiochus Epiphanes, after the sacrifice, and trying to cause the Jews to make sacrifices to Zeus, it, it led to what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt was started by a guy named Mattathias Maccabee and his sons, and they revolted against the Jewish people. And they were somewhat successful, I'm sorry, not against the Jewish people, against the Greeks. And they were somewhat successful. They were able to at least dispel the Greeks. They didn't defeat the Greek empire, but they were able to regain the temple in Jerusalem and have some sort of a restored uh, presence of their nation. Now, when they got back to their temple, we're almost done with the history. When they got back to their temple, they went in there and they had a feast of dedication to the temple. They went back in Jerusalem, they consecrated it, and part of that feast is, or part of their tradition is they would take oil uh, that was, had, was sealed by the high priests, and the oil was to light the candle in the temple. Here's the presence of light. Now, light for them in the temple was to always be burning, because that light meant God was present. That was their, that was their symbol of God's presence. So they went in and lit, they found, uh, to light the candle, they found one jar remaining according to their tradition. And that one jar was not enough because it would take them about eight days to make more oil for the temple. The rest of the oil had been uh, desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. And according to their tradition, this oil from one jar burned for eight days. This is the tradition, and the Feast of Dedication, by the way, the word in Hebrew for that is Hanukkah. So tonight, in December 2nd, the Jewish people across the world will light candles to celebrate Hanukkah. It's their festival of light. It's God's presence among them and how he showed up in a dark time. We're going to get back to that in just a second. For them, it was a little bit short-lived because then the Roman Empire came in, defeated the Greeks, and once again, at the time of Christ, when he was born, they were under oppression once again and saying, God, how long till you show up? Now today, I want to invite you to now look in the book of John, chapter 10. This is not a traditional Christmas story, but I thought because today our theme of our Christmas story is hope, and the presence of light gives hope. And I want to look at a story that maybe you've heard, maybe you've passed over, maybe we, it's brand new to you, but it's in John chapter 10, verse 22. And it starts off and says this, at that time, the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. In other words, at that time, Hanukkah took place in Jerusalem. When my family and I lived in Jerusalem, we, uh, we moved there and we rented an apartment and, the very, and I was kind of naive. I was a student at Hebrew University. We rented an apartment without ever having even been to Israel or been to Jerusalem, found something online and showed up the first day. And our landlord showed up and our landlord asked us something. She said, what, uh, she asked us something about our, our, how Jewish we are, essentially. <laughs> how orthodox are you? Is what she asked um, our name kind of Rosenbaum, she would assume, you're living in Israel, okay? And I was naive at the time and just said, oh, actually, we're Christian. After living in Israel for a year, I learned that was not a good way to start off with a landlord because on 99% of the other homes, they would have said, well, this 
is no longer available to you. It turns out someone just moved in a second ago, and we would have been on the street. She, uh, but she said, oh, how has Hashem gotten to your life, which is their word for Jesus the Messiah. It means the name. It turns out that our, one, our landlord happened to be a Messianic Jew who welcomed us into the home. Now, they invited us over to their house for Hanukkah. We've never celebrated Hanukkah. We went to their house on the first night of Hanukkah, and we knew that for the Messianic Jewish community in Jerusalem, they were always very quiet about it because there's a lot of oppression and, and persecution. And so we just went there to say we're celebrating Hanukkah. Don't say anything about anything. We're Rosenbaums. Okay, so... And other families came, and, and one of the people who came in, the very first thing, this lady, she pulls out a guitar and says, we're going to sing some Hanukkah songs. She's like, okay. And she said, hey, does anyone know what great biblical figure celebrated Hanukkah? And I'm thinking, oh, I don't know, that's after the Bible. She goes, Jesus. <laughs> and it turns out we were at a secret underground messianic Hanukkah celebration. <laughs> so here in John chapter 10, Jesus is at the temple during Hanukkah. It was winter. The writer John says that for the Greek audience because the Jews would understand that. But he says it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple portico of Solomon. That's outside of the temple. It's, it's one of the hallways, essentially. And it says the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to them, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ or if you are the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Now, how direct is that? <laughs> Here they are on the night of Hanukkah when they're celebrating how God's presence miraculously showed up in a time of darkness. And there's rumors about this Jesus that he was born in Bethlehem, that he's worshiped as a Messiah, he's performing great miracles, he's speaking with authority, in fact, in John chapter 8, he claimed to be God in flesh. He essentially said, yes, I am the one you're waiting for. And now on Hanukkah, they said, just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Are you the light that will show up when we're walking in darkness? Are you the Prince of Peace, Son of God? Are you Emmanuel? God with us. Is that you? Jesus goes on and says, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify about, about me. But you don't believe because you're not my sheep. That's a tough start. Verse 27. I have this for you. It says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and they picked up stones again to kill him. Now this seems really bizarre, doesn't it? If you go to Jesus on the Feast of Dedication, and you say, are you the Messiah? And he says, well, I've told you, and you don't know because you're not my sheep, but my sheep know me, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You say, that's it, we're killing you. <laughs> There's something more that Jesus is saying that we, as modern American Christians, don't get. And I want to invite you now to turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. This is in your Old Testament, 
This is another prophecy, and it's a little more than halfway through your Bible. It's one of what we call the major prophets. And I have some of these verses on the screen for you to make it a little bit easier. But Ezekiel chapter 34, I want to pick it up in verse 11. It says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. Verse 12 says this, As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and of total darkness. Jump down to verse 16. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. You see, in Isaiah 34, this is a prophecy that is essentially criticizing the religious leaders of the day. Saying, you religious leaders are selfish, and you're only thinking of yourselves, and, and you're putting this unnecessary burden on your people, and you are, uh, it, he says, fattening yourselves while the sheep are starving. You are not good shepherds. So he says in verse 12, so I myself, this prophecy, will come and I will be the shepherd. I will seek out the lost. I will bring them home. I will bandage their wounds. I will restore them. In other words, I will be the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. You see, when Jesus responds to them, when they said, are you the Messiah? Are you God's sent one to us? Are you really that person? Jesus, who knew very well that they would understand the prophets. He knew very well that the religious leaders would know things about the, the coming Messiah and how God will, his presence will show up. So when Jesus says, okay, let me just make it clear to you. I know my sheep and I will be the good shepherd to them. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. He was saying, you know Ezekiel 34? Do you know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd? You know all of those throughout the Hebrew scriptures that talks about your God being your shepherd? Yeah, that's me. So their response is, well, let's kill him for blasphemy. Why? Why would you kill God for blasphemy? He was saying, I'll be your good shepherd. It's because the people who heard this wanted a different kind of shepherd. They wanted the one who was going to come and say, so let's go, let's destroy Rome. Let's fight against them. Well, follow me and we'll go all the way to Rome and destroy the emperor. Let's go. But what Jesus says is actually at the heart of God, I come to restore the lost and the broken and the bandaged up those who are wounded. I come to bring hope that is so much greater than who's on the throne in Rome. I'm a different kind of shepherd. You're only worried about yourselves, but I'm coming to bring you spiritual healing, spiritual hope in this world. So how does the Messiah give us hope? What does he mean by that? Look at a few of those verses there that I love. First of all, he starts off and he says, I seek the lost. In other words, 
He starts off and says that there is room in his kingdom for everyone. Look back at verse 12 of Ezekiel 34. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from the places where they're scattered. I will bring them back to me. The heart of God, the heart of the Messiah Jesus is his light brings hope and there's room in his kingdom for everyone who's scattered across the globe. See, to many of the religious leaders at the time of Jesus, they wanted only room for the elite, only room for those who understood and who would follow the laws the way they wanted people to follow the laws, only room for those who were of the right family, only for those who had the right jobs. But Jesus says, you are so far from the heart of God. And the Messiah, Jesus says, I will gather my flock from the ends of the earth to the people in the 21st century in Encinitas, I will gather them to me. To the people who are living in Africa, I will gather them to me. To those in the Far East, those in the Middle East, he's saying, I, my creations, I have room in my kingdom for all. We look at the teachings of Jesus. He constantly says, I go out to, this, to the alleyways, beat the bushes, invite more into the kingdom. It's not for the elite. It is the Messiah saying, my presence means there's hope for all. There's room in the kingdom for all. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity right here on campus. It was election day, and there's people. uh, We always open our campus for people to uh, come and to vote. And uh, during that, I I was walking, and there was someone who was on our campus, and uh, we said hi, and he started asking me some questions. And we sat down at a table out there and ended up talking for about an hour. And, and here's a person who's struggling with his gender identity. He has no faith in God, uh, and he uh, has struggling with relationships. He's struggling with uh, feeling peace. He has a substance abuse addiction. He has all of these things in his life. And he kept asking me, well, what do you guys really believe? And what he kept getting back to is, is there hope for someone like me. And it is such a joy for me to say confidently and open the scriptures and say, well, let me show you the heart of God. Let me let you know that you are God's precious creation whom he loves. And that there is room at the table for anyone who receives Jesus. He doesn't distinguish based on how you're living your life right now to say, you're out. You've blown it. See, that's what the religious leaders would like to do. You're out. You don't look right. You don't act right. You're out. And Jesus says, that's not the way I shepherd my sheep. I gather them back to my arms. The invitation goes out, and light gives hope to someone who says, is there hope for me? I don't know the end of this person's story, but I know at least from that moment on he could leave believing that there's at least a God who, there's a glimmer of hope in his life. There's a little bit of light. So we learn that from this story, that with the Messiah, that he'll seek the lost, there's room for everyone in the kingdom. The second part this part is this, there's, he'll bandage our wounds. He'll bandage our wounds. Now, Jesus literally was physically healing people. Why did Jesus physically heal people? One of the reasons Jesus, Jesus physically healed people is a symbol of his power. But it also was an actual literal fulfillment for people to say, look, I'm God, I'm bandaging your wounds. But does that mean that all of our sicknesses today are healed? No, it does not. I wish it meant so, but it doesn't. But there's a spiritual healing that we find in Christ. 
that there is a freedom that we have in him that we did not have before. We even find here in verse 27 of Ezekiel 34, for those of you who are still there, the spiritual healing, he says, also as a tree in the field will yield fruit on the earth, the yield will increase and they'll secure their land. He says this, then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hands of those who enslaved them. What does that mean? He's going to set them free from being oppressed by other people, but there's something even more that Jesus applied. There's a spiritual healing. See, in, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to give you spiritual healing. I want to break the bars of the yoke that are placed on you by the religious leaders who say they're the good shepherds, but they're not. There's a spiritual freedom and healing that comes in Jesus Christ. And he offers it, the Messiah. It means that there's room at the table. It means that we can find healing in our lives spiritually. Are you in here this morning and you feel a burden? Do you feel like no matter what you do, your past just cannot be erased. It keeps popping up. Do you feel like God just keeps revealing that and saying, look, look how bad you were. Are you really sure you can be a Christian? Do you feel like you keep falling short in your faith? Jesus says, I want to break that bar of yoke that's on you, and I want to give you my yoke, my burden. It's a spiritual freedom that comes from Christ. This last week, our life group got to talk about what the good news looks like applied in our lives. And one of the things we talked about was the fact that the good news, when we really describe it, of the freedom that comes from Jesus, the forgiveness from Jesus, that when we really describe it, it is so good, it should cause us to think that doesn't work. It's too good. It should actually say, wait, you're saying Jesus is so good so I can go out and be a sinner and he'll still forgive me? And the answer is yes. If the good news isn't that good, we haven't quite got to it yet. And of course, then Paul says, where our sin abounds, grace abounds more. So should we just go on sinning so we get more grace? He said, no. Why would you do that? The good news is so good, you're set free not only from your sin, but you're set free to live the life that Christ has given you, which is so much more. So we have spiritual healing. And finally, I love and how he ends there too. It says, I strengthen the weak. It gives us confidence and security. The presence of the Messiah in our lives actually changes the way we can go throughout our days. Someone was asking me once how that actually works, and I just looked at him and said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it works, but I can tell you that walking with Christ, there's a peace that I have that I haven't had before, where I can face decisions, and I can face questions, and I can say, you know what? I'm not sure what the outcome is, but I have confidence that God is walking with me, and if it is to be, it's, it will work the way God wants it to. There's a freedom in that. He strengthens the weak. The presence of Christ in our lives actually gives us a confidence to be who we are. That's something as a, someone who worked in a church, that's something that's been a struggle for me for a long time. Because working as a pastor, I almost apologize to people I used to. Like, okay, so what, what do you do for work? Well, okay, I work in a church, but it's okay. I still like you. <laughs> and, and I actually wrestled with this, like, this kind of lack of confidence. 
as if I let my identity in Jesus be known that somehow that's going to repel people to growing it more and more to say like, yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm a pastor in a church and I get the great uh, job of being able to t- give the message of hope that's found in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And there's confidence in that. And if the relationship ends because I'm a Christian, it doesn't end because I'm a jerk. It ends because someone is not ready for Jesus. But you know what? It doesn't, hasn't really happened that many times. I think it will. The enemy wants me to think it will. But most people I meet, even atheists, actually have no problem with me believing in Jesus. In fact, some we've seen have been drawn to the light. So he strengthens the weak when the light is present. So how do we respond? What's, what should we do? I just want to give you one thing. And that is, let's just be people who respond to and receive the Messiah in our lives. You know, what's the darkness that you experience today? Some of you say, well, I've, I've received the Messiah, I'm a Christian, so now I don't need this point of application. Our first thing is we do want to respond to the forgiveness of Jesus. We want to respond to the Messiah in our lives. If you've never trusted Jesus for your forgiveness, if you've never trusted him to welcome you into his flock, this morning I want to challenge you to do so. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I just want, I want to trust you with my life. Would you forgive me for my sins and welcome me in? It's simple. But what about those of us who already have? Where's the darkness in your life where you have forgotten that when the light is present, there is hope? I mean, there's obvious brokenness in the world. There's conflict among people. There's pain. There's wars. There's all kinds of those things. But what are the darkness in your life? What about the relational darkness? What are the relationships in your life where you feel like, I just need the presence of light? Maybe for you, it's the inability to forgive someone. Or maybe for you, it's you know that you have wronged somebody and you need forgiveness. What is the relational darkness that you're experiencing? Maybe for some of you, it's an internal darkness. It's a a lack of confidence. It's a fear of what if people really knew me? How many of you are here today and you say, yeah, but if you really knew my story, you wouldn't love me. This church wouldn't love me if they really knew me. Are you here today and you're afraid of being misunderstood? Is that your darkness? Are you afraid to trust that with Jesus the Messiah, that he is the light that shines in our darkness? And when the world sees a great light, there is great hope for all of us. So this morning, I want to challenge you with that response. And I want to leave you with this last verse from Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 30 and 31. It says this, they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them. And they are my people, the house of Israel, declares the Lord. And you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are my people. And I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord, the Lord who is over all things. 
the Lord who holds all things in his hands, who knows your story, who knows how it ends. He will be your shepherd. You can be his people. Pray with me. Lord God, I thank you so much of the reminder that where there is light, there is hope. Lord, that your presence isn't just something we sing about once a year, but it's something we can experience as we walk through our own darkness, our own struggles, our own doubts, our own relational issues, our own lack of confidence, our own fear of our sins. Lord, we need your light in our lives. And Lord, just like Vic and the leadership of Alateen were able to be present and to be light in the lives of these kids, to bring them hope, Lord, we need your light to bring us hope. So this morning, Jesus, we lay whatever is on our hearts, whatever makes us believe that we're walking in darkness, whatever causes us to think we're alone, we lay that before you now. And we ask, Lord, that we, this Christmas season, would truly believe that you are the light of the world and the light in our worlds. So we give you this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.